All right, so uh, lesson 84, we're in Revelation chapter 21, and um, verses 1 through 3 are really the, the introduction thoughts that uh, John presents in this chapter, um, heaven and earth, a new heaven, a new earth, for the former heaven and earth had passed away, there was no more sea. And then it says in verse 2 that he saw the holy city descending from God. And then the ultimate point is that God would dwell with man. So this is where we're going tonight. Last week we talked about uh, the New Jerusalem, the presentation of the New Jerusalem, how John saw this holy city coming down from heaven, from God, um, in the context, as we talked last week, that it's not that it was being created, it was something that had been there, in a sense, in reserve, had been sitting on a back shelf in heaven, no, but um, God was now presenting it to the earth, and, um, and the glorious imagery that John uses to describe the New Jerusalem, but now he's going to go into more of the detail. So starting in chapter 21 and verse 9 is where we're looking tonight. And as John is seeing these things, uh, he's not only aided by an angel, he's aided by the Spirit of God and even the voice of God speaking to him. And as we progress through chapter, the rest of chapter 21 and into chapter 22, uh, John continues to get more and more uh, instruction. And it's, as we get to 22, it's, it's almost like it's rushing to a conclusion. And, and I believe that there's, a, there's almost like a purpose in that. God is saying, I can't wait. He knows he is. He knows his time. He knows exactly when it's going to happen. But in his heart, because God lives outside of time, uh, he looks forward to this full reunion. This is what God wants, us being forever with him in heaven. So, Revelation 21, look at verse 9. He says, Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Same phrase he used back in verse 1. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So, we get this opening, opening view. Now, he's seen it. Now, God is going to bring a little bit more uh, clarity to what he has seen. Uh, the third page that I gave you is this uh, illustration. I searched through the internet till I found uh, something that would give a representation. So the first thing at the top, and I wish they'd made put this little box in this dimensions, but they didn't. Um, if one corner of the New Jerusalem was placed on Los Angeles... The second corner would sit on Mexico City. The third would sit on St. Louis, Missouri. And the final one on Edmonton, Alberta. That's a huge area. All right, that's 1,500 miles square. But it's not just square. It's a cube. And it's the same height. So the first illustration, the one at the top with the globe, he made a box that would be to that dimension, considering the size of this globe. I'm glad he worked all the math out on that, and I didn't have to. But um, 
And so he made this to scale, and he put it on the area of Jerusalem so that the center of that box is over Jerusalem. So if the holy city is going to descend to where the old Jerusalem was, then this is how it would look. Now, is the new earth going to look like this? Got no idea. Number one, why? There's a lot of changes, but also says there's be no more, no more sea. So all that blue area, gone. I don't know. I, I still, there's still going to be lots of water on the earth, right? There's going to be lots of water. So, uh, a lot of water. Isn't that town up north? A lot of water. That's no water. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, people, people listening to this, yeah. People listening to this don't know what I'm talking about because they're not from Oklahoma. Yeah. So the bottom illustration is if it was sitting over a part of the United States, which projects into some parts of Mexico and northern part of Canada above the Hudson Bay. And so that's 1,500 miles square. But the imagery of the globe is what it would look like if you were standing on the top of the box and looked over the edge. Okay, now 1,500 miles. I've been on the Arkansas, or the Royal Gorge Bridge, which is a mile above the Arkansas River. I don't want to be at a 1,500 miles and look over the edge. I just, I just don't think I could do it. I know we say it won't hurt, but... Still, I, I, even in a new body, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that, okay? Because that's, so that's graphically what 1,500 miles, that's what the earth would look like from 1,500 miles. That's above where most of our satellites are. It's way above where the space station is. Um, I think we've got some spy satellites that are in that realm. Um but, uh, yeah, so it's, it's uh, way up there. Okay? So that's just, I just put those there for our looking at this imagery. The, um, as, as John is presenting this, is he's overwhelmed by the beauty of the city. We may be overwhelmed by the physics of it because we're looking at the description and in our minds, it's hard for us to picture the glory of this place. You can use words, You've got lots of words, and you can describe them and say it's this and it's that and it's this thing and it's that thing, but you can't see it. Yeah. You can't see it in the way that it's going to be presented. And so John, by the means of the Spirit, is lifted up. It says to a great mountain. Well, there's no mountain that is 1,500 miles high, right? That's, uh, that's not a mountain. So he was lifted up onto some kind of a place. All he could describe it with as, as if he was on a mountaintop. And he'd never been on a mountain probably much higher than maybe 3,000 feet. I don't know how high the mountains in the Aegean Sea are. I didn't look that up, but I don't think there's any that are over 3,000 feet. I don't think there's anything above a mile. Now, you go to Greece and you can go Mount Olympus, which I'm not sure how high that is, but it's not 1,500 miles, right? Because that's way up there. So this is by the Spirit. Was he really there? Well, that's hard to say because he didn't say, I was lifted up. It says by the Spirit. And it's not just in the Spirit. So it's not like this was a vision. He was seeing this. Now, I know the whole book is, in a sense, a vision. But John is actually seeing himself above this. Seeing himself so that he can, interestingly, look down on it and into it. And as we get into chapter 
21 and, and into 22, he can describe the buildings that are inside. He can describe what he sees there, the river, the trees. You know, so you can't see that from 1,500 miles. <laughs> but God is giving him this opportunity uh, to see this, to present it to us so that we can be overwhelmed. So that we can say, wow, we are so, <coughs> our Western mind is so science fact-based that we can't, we can hardly allow our minds to have that kind of imagination. I remember early in the, uh, in my teaching, I, th I think I was still a student or a teacher at Rama, and um, I remember people saying you shouldn't use your imagination, that imagination was uh, from the devil, it can be filled with the devil's things, and yeah, I could, I'm not going to tell you the name of the man who taught that, but, uh, and there's others who picked it up. When one person teaches something, you know, other people start picking it up. And so it was wrong to use your imagination, and one of the students rebuked me one day, uh, for talking about imagination, so uh, I took them to um, Paul talking about uh, casting down imaginations, high things, yeah, okay. Those are imaginations, but what does it say? That exalt himself against the knowledge of God. It doesn't say anything about imagination that exalts God. And there are imaginations that exalt God, because I can't see this. And if God doesn't expect us to imagine it. Now, listening to, and I was sharing this with a couple of you the other day, uh, listening to some of the young generation today, a growing, a growing thing among them is the expression that, and there's a, there's a name for it, and I should have looked that up also, that they can't, they don't have the ability to form a mental picture. And there's a name for it. And it's, and it's like one person says that, and when that sounds really cool, then other people say, well, I can't either. You know, and to, to say that they can't form a mental picture. So if you say house, they can't form a picture of a house. All right. I'm not saying there may not be some people, but I'm sorry. I don't believe that there are that many people that can't form a picture of a house. And one step further than that, they can't hear a voice. They say they don't know what an inner voice is. And they, they don't know what it means to hear a voice from within. Well, what do we talk about a lot? Listening to the voice of the Spirit. Not just the Holy Spirit, but our own spirit speaking to us guiding us, directing us. Pastor Bob, just one of his recent newsletters, he, he was talking about, you know, hearing the voice of God. And it's, it's listening to that voice that comes within. And if you say, well, I don't have one of those, number one, you're wrong. But you're not going to gain anything from it. You're not going to use it. And, you know, there's one thing to say, you're blind and can't see it's another thing if it's just because you're not opening your eyes okay just right bad humor but um some people just need to look and the book of revelation depends on us being able to imagine things because there is no way in this physical world that we can put together something like this so when I went to the pages to try to find representations of the New Jerusalem, and let me tell you, there are thousands of them on the web, um, I determined I was not going to put anybody's cartoonish, weird, bizarre, all right, to Jeff, stupid presentation of what the new heaven and the new earth would look like. I just, I'm not going to do that. So, this was as simple as I could get it. Just dimensions. Why? Because John is seeing something that, how do you see that? You can't see 1,500 miles. Unless you're, well, there's a space station, they can. 
But on this earth you can't because of the curvature of the earth. All right, then I'm getting into the flat earth people. Sorry to offend you. But it's the curvature of the earth that makes you, keeps you from being able to see 1,500 miles. So here's the point. John saw this. How he was going to express it. Now, the Greek language, if you count the vocabulary, New Testament vocabulary, um, is made up of about 7,000 words. So the Greek language that John had to use had a vocabulary of about 7,000 words. The English vocabulary today is close to 200,000 words. So we've got all kinds of words that John didn't even have. We've got descriptive things that John didn't have contact with, but he wrote what he saw. And the simplicity of his words overwhelms us. So the first thing that he saw was his holy city, and he's drawn to the attention of this. And the thing that he's drawn to, look at verse um, verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance, like a most rare jewel. Having the glory of God. How do you explain the glory of God. How do you explain something that is glorious? He uses a word, and he says its radiance was like. That's the closest he can come. Notice he says like. He doesn't say was. Its radiance was. Its radiance was like. There's a similitude, but it's not an exactness. I can't tell you what exactly, but it was it was like a jasper, which if you examine the gems of that day, I've looked through two dozen different people's presentations, and so I just had to settle on the ones that seemed to be the most common. And in the most common idea of what they knew of as a jasper in their day, we would call a diamond. And this was a crystal clear diamond. And if this diamond has come from God, now how many of you have seen some beautiful diamonds? Right, yeah. Jan and I were uh, guests of some people back, it was last year to teach at Raymond, and this family came and we got to go to dinner with them. And uh, she had a 23 carat diamond. It was the size of like a, a, a it was like a piece of, uh, gum, you know, <laughs> like a, like a chiclet, you know, it was, and it was kind of a yellowish, pale yellow, absolutely beautiful, and she, uh, she, she said, asked Jan if she wanted to try it on, I, I said, no, <laughs> not because I couldn't afford it, but, but because if it got stuck, they, they'd cut the finger off, it doesn't matter, it's like, off with your finger, you know, we're going to get your diamond back. So, sorry, it's stuck in my hand, can't get it off, guess I'll have to keep it. No, that wasn't going to work. But it's, this is a diamond that has come down from God, crystal clear. And John is overwhelmed. He didn't say the city was made out of diamond, right? He said it's like, that, that the closest thing he said I can come to would be a jasper, a diamond, very rare, crystal clear. And so that's how he, he presents this. That's the closest I could come. But then the word for radiance. Radiance um, can be also translated brilliance. And the brilliance has to do with the light coming from within it. Now, diamonds don't have light on the inside. They get the light from the outside, and because of the way that they're faceted and cut, then it reflects the light back. This one wasn't reflecting. It had radiance. It was coming from within. 
We, we use the word radiate, go out from. That's exactly the word that's used here. One translation said it was like a, like a, like a glass light bulb, like a diamond that's got a light on the inside of it. And the light was shining out from within, not coming down from without. Why? Because the city has the throne of God, and the throne of God has the glory of God, and the glory of God is the place where God dwells. And out from the throne, from the Lamb, comes this light that is bursting out. And uh, that has got to be incredible. Now, John's not trying to describe a gigantic piece of jewelry. He's talking about a city. And how big is this city? 1,500 miles cube. And it's like a diamond. What in the world? All right, so this, how, how, John's without words. That's the closest I can come. Sorry. That's the best I've got. And you know what? If I was there, though I have potential, I didn't say I have a vocabulary of 200,000 words, but I have the potential of a 200,000 word, I, I still couldn't describe it. You couldn't. Because it's beyond our ability to fully comprehend. This is the glory of God. Why do we have to feel like we got to figure everything out? Our stupid Western mind just says, I got to have logic, I got to have this, it's got to come to this, it's got to, you know, my mathematics all have to line up and all this kind of stuff. God doesn't care about mathematics. Physically, there's no way this city could exist. There are no physical properties by which this city could stand. The weight, the dimensions, the reality that it's made out of, of transparent gold? How do we do that? Gold isn't even a strong metal. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't build a stepladder out of gold. Not, not if you want to climb on it. <laughs> so it just, it just doesn't work. God wants us to be overwhelmed. And we need to release our minds to a place where we are able to accept something that is beyond what we can figure out. All right, so again, jasper is not the, uh, the common stone that's called a jasper today, but it's probably a diamond. That's the most, most of the people agreed that that's probably what it was, and so I'll go with them. It's this huge flawless diamond and then it's called precious um, verse 11 having the glory of God it's radiance like a most rare jewel well the word most rare is precious precious the Greek word timios and the contrast is with something that's common <laughs> it's precious because it's not common the Greek word for common, anybody know what the word, Greek word for common is? Idiotes. <laughs> common. So when they called the disciples common, they called them what? Idiots. Idiots. Yeah, that's, that was. Now, the Latin word for common is? Vulgar. That's just the Latin word for common. So. Vulgar idiots, right? That's what they called the disciples. They weren't. It's just a way to say common. And so this word timios sits in opposition to that. It is not common at all because there's nothing like it. And so the translation, I, I do agree uh, with them translating that word instead of just precious or um, costly most rare you could absolutely rare <laughs> one of a kind right nothing nothing like this so 
Stones gather their value because they are not common. So, you know, to pick up a piece of limestone gravel out there, nothing to it. But if you found a diamond like that, well, that's, <laughs> that's altogether different. All right, so this one is clear as crystal, most rare, radiating the glory of God. Verse 12, John then sees these high, this high-walled city. And so he says in verse 12, uh, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 apostles of the sons of Israel were inscribed, three on the east, three on the north, three on the west, three on the south. So this was really no different than uh, the tabernacle in Moses' day, and I would imagine that the tribes were arranged in exactly the same order as they were uh, when the tabernacle was built in the wilderness. Three tribes on the north, three tribes on the west, three tribes on the south, three tribes on the east. And so those same ones, are they the same people? I would assume so. Just as a guess, I would, I would say those were the same tribes. And the heads of that tribe were inscribed on those gates, representing the fact that this city is not just for New Testament believers. It's for Old Testament believers also. And they are represented by these 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. And so these are all the Jewish believers, all the people who have believed from the Old Testament time, um, before the law, during the law, all of those who have come because they believed that the Messiah was the perfect sacrifice, that God was going to send someone, a Messiah. Could they describe him? Mm, no. Job did a pretty good job. I know my Redeemer lives. He called him his Redeemer. Other people called him their hope, called him the Lamb, who's the, the, the kinsman. So there was all kinds of names that they used for this Messiah that was going to come. Pretty soon he became known as the Son of Man. And so consistently through the times of the prophets, the Son of Man became a more common and almost prevalent name for this promised Messiah. But all of it was Jesus. All of it's a presentation of the Jesus that was going to come. And those who believed are in this holy city just as much as we, the church, will be there. All right, so this is a glorious opportunity. Now, the angels standing there, there's all kinds of, of different interpretations. I just see them as the, the assigned guards that God has set over his people. Angels stand as guardians, and they stand as servants. Well, they're not here serving anyone. They're standing at the gates. And the only reason they'd be standing at the gates is to be as guardians. Now, does that mean someone's going to try to get into the holy city? No, we're not back in the, you know, the, uh, it's not the Chronicles, the uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Okay, so we're not back at the Lord of the Rings and they're trying to attack the castle. No, it's not the demons and the devil on the outside trying to get in. It's just that they are the guardians of the presence of God. And so there are angels, and then closer to God are the four cherubim who always stand in the presence of God. And they're always there in that same capacity. And to me, that they just represent the fact that no one gets in except those who have come through the way that God has established. Remember how God said an angel at the east side of the gate of the Garden of Eden after man had been um, <laughs> banned, right? And so an angel was set there. Then God lifted that up and removed it from the earth. But these angels are there in the presence of God. If God is there, what? They're there. So, 
Ever felt like you're in the presence of God? Well, you should feel it all the time. Guess what? His angels are here too. They are the guardians of his presence. And so they are there. And because we are in him, they're here as our guardians as well. All right. So they had the angels were there. And then on each of the gates, as I said, was inscribed one of the names of the tribes and the three gates on each side of the city. And then there was the foundation of the city. And verse 14 opens the way for that part. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you got now you've got 12 foundations. You had 12 gates. Now you got 12 foundations. And I've seen these foundations presented like in a step pattern, where as you go higher, they get narrower. I'm not so sure that that's the way it is. I think they're all probably the same size. That's just Jeff. But um, John doesn't tell us. All he begins to describe, though, is the full dimensions of the city. And so uh, he tells us that these foundations uh, were each one identified, and we're also going to see that each one of the foundations was made of a different gemstone, but each one of the foundations had the name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, Just a quick mention here their new testament apostleship is broken into to me three categories there are the apostles of the lamb those were the 12 that walked with jesus plus paul all right i believe paul is the 12th we can argue that till the sun comes up right but i believe paul was the 12th to replace judas there's No one others, right? Those 12, because if you weren't in that group, you're not in that group. There's only 12 apostles of the Lamb. But then there's writing apostles who had authority within the New Testament. For example, James, the brother of Jesus. He's an apostle, but he wasn't with the 12. There was Jude. There was Luke. Timothy, each one of those, they were writing apostles. And they, they wrote as God had given, and what they wrote is as authoritative as if God spoke it himself, because he did, right? Their word is authority. And so there are the apostles of the Lamb. Did Thomas ever write anything? Did did. James the Lesser write anything? You know, we don't know. But we know that there were writers. Some were members of the Twelve. Others were not. But they are still writing apostles in the sense that they wrote with the full authority of God's word. Their words cannot be contested. Their words are true. I was talking with a friend of ours the other day. He was telling us he went to a Bible uh, store uh, to get... He wanted to get a red letter edition Bible. They didn't have one. And uh, I had read something about that. I hadn't thought much about it. But I had read a couple months back that some of the Bible publishers are pulling red letter editions out of circulation because the red letters offend some of the new Christians who don't believe that every word that Jesus spoke is authoritative. So they don't want to be reminded that he said them. You know what? You can you can you can change the color of the ink. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Mine's this is just black and white. You know, but um still said it. still said it and it says that in the Bible. Jesus said. Jesus said. It's it's right there. Jesus said. I don't care if it's green letters. Or white letters on black page. I don't care what they are. Chiseled in stone. Doesn't matter to me. Tattooed on your arm. Elsewhere. Doesn't matter what it is. It's the word of God. Right? They're the words of Jesus. So anyway. But these 
two classes of apostles. Then the last class of apostles are those who are fivefold ministry apostles, of which there still are those in existence today. There were in Paul's time. There were people who weren't, they weren't apostles of the Lamb, they weren't writing apostles. So you've got, um, uh, what are their names? Uh, the, the husband and wife. Priscilla and Aquila, uh, her name is always mentioned first. Um, uh, another one in, in Romans chapter 16, there's two other women mentioned who are women apostles. And so the, um, the point being that there are apostles then. Are there apostles today? Yes. Of course there are. Say, well, but, but the people that say there aren't apostles today, it's because all they can think of is the 12 apostles of the Lamb or the writing apostles. And they aren't either one of those. Right? So, but there are those who are apostles. Okay? But anyway, the ones that are going to be here are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. They are, in a sense, the foundation, but so also are the, the, um, the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel because God brought the gospel through the Old Testament. It was the message was given through the prophets and through the Old Testament believers. And so God honors them as much as he honors the members of the church. All right. Now, chapter 21, verse 15. So now he's going to start to get more specific on certain things. And again, some of this, you just have to let your imagination free. All right. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now, how big was this measuring rod if the city's 1,500 miles? Wow. All right. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. All right, got that. And they measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Stadia is, um, I forget how many hundred feet, whatever, but 607 feet, yeah, it's down there in my notes someplace, yeah, 607 feet. So 12,000 stadia becomes between 1,400 and 1,500 miles, all right, so the, he measured it, and then he said the length and the width and the height are equal. So, it's not just square, it's cubed, right? And so this is an incredible amount of space. The uh, approximately, what, uh, are we close to 8 billion people in the earth today? Inside that cube would be minuscule. It wouldn't even begin to fill up the space if all the population of the earth was in there. So there's plenty of room in heaven for, for more. All right. And then he says uh, he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So in other words, the angel measured it with man's dimensions. Um, using the dimensions that man would have. All right, verse fifteen. the The angel is carrying this golden rod, and this is similar. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter forty, and in Ezekiel forty, an angel comes and measures the city, and so Ezekiel sees uh, something similar to this, and you can read some of that if you want to turn back to Ezekiel forty. Not while I'm teaching. All right. Um, and he notes the city as, it, as it's laid out. He first of all sees the square of it, and then the height. And it's, it's beyond, again, anything that John has ever experienced. Now, John's probably seen some big cities. We have no evidence that John ever went to Rome. But there were some pretty glorious cities. He grew up near one. Jerusalem, under Herod, 
was an incredible city. So also was Caesarea by the sea. And they were incredible cities. Herod had incredible palaces with high walls and fortresses and all those things. And John was familiar with many of those. He saw Roman encampments in various places. And I'm sure as he traveled through the seven churches region in Asia, he saw some incredible cities there. The, the city of uh, Pergamos built on this hill uh, overlooking the sea an incredible image and if you've ever seen artist conceptions of Pergamos check it out it's it's unbelievable what this city would look like and the temples and the walls and the palaces and all these things he's seen that he's not seen anything like this this is beyond anything that he can identify with he never mentions marble never mentions granite never mentions limestone <laughs> Because God doesn't build his city out of earthly elements. These are his own elements. That's why he says these things he saw are like. It's like a diamond. It's not a diamond. It's like one. It's like this. It's like that. It's like this. But it's not just that. You say, well, he says it's gold, but it's not like anything we know of as gold. Anybody here ever seen transparent gold? Uh, you can't do it <laughs> and you certainly you can't you, you could string it out maybe try to press it and press it and press it to the place where you could maybe see through like gold foil or something like that thin enough thin enough but if you touch it it'd fall apart you can't build anything with it this is this is not our gold this is God's gold and so the things that John is seeing are not described in elements that are standard in his world. And so he sees this city as it's laid out, and it's measured again, this 1,500 square miles, cube miles. And uh, you see the picture. Okay, let's get on to verse 18. The wall was built of jasper. Oh, by the way, it says the wall was 144 cubits thick. That is, um, that's not, it doesn't say thick and it doesn't say high. It just says the wall was 144 cubits by man's measurement. Well, that's, if it was only 144 cubits, I had the numbers written down here someplace. I can't see them right offhand. But if it was only 144 cubits high, that's a tiny wall. 200 and 216 feet. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty tiny wall compared to 1,500-mile city. All right, it's not going to do anything. It's that the wall, city walls were comparable to the height of the city, to the buildings inside. And so the wall would be comparable in height to the city. How high? Got no idea. John didn't tell us. But he did tell us it's 144 cubits, 216 feet thick. That's, that's big, all right? So he has this, and the wall was built, again, of this diamond. Well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So it's gold, but it's like glass. Gold so pure, so clear that you can see through it. How do you do that? Again, it's not within the physical limitations of anything we know of in this earth. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's one big oyster. Right? And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So now he begins this transformation. John is going to move from here. As he describes the wall and the foundations, he's going to move from that 
in the next chapter into the city itself. It's like his attention is drawn away from the appearance of the city to the throne and the very presence of God, which will come in the next couple lessons, right? This new Jerusalem, again, is made out of pure gold, but pure gold like glass. All John could do is write down what he saw. And it's not, don't, as I've seen in a couple translations and commentaries, it's not golden glass. And so they re- arrange the words to make it glass because glass can be incredibly strong and uh, so they rearrange the words so that it's golden glass no it's not golden glass it's glass gold that is like glass and uh, again don't let physics limit what you can imagine that God is doing. Okay, so verse 18. The wall was built out of jasper. Again, that's the diamond, the gold, uh, the expression gold without impurity, uh, pure gold, uh, gold without any impurity. We cannot get pure gold in this earth. It's always going to have some micro amount of impurity. We can't make it pure. This is without impurity. And uh, that is significant. It's, it's probably more, if, if Paul had used the word for pure and gold, that would have been okay. But see, the world uses that. But he said gold without impurity. And so this is something that is uh, very much more specific as to what it was he was saying. The transparency again. Why? What do we? What when we get to the chapter on the city and we're inside the city? What does it say? One of the things that the city has. It's got a number of things that are no. There's no sun, no moon, no stars. Right? There's what else? No. No. No day or night. No shadows. How do you, how do you build buildings with no shadows? When the light is coming from one source, it's not coming from all around. I mean, you could you could make a situation where there's no shadows because you got lights in every every angle. This is not that. This is one light that's at the center, shining out. Yet there are no shadows. Why? Because everything is crystal clear. Everything is pure and like glass. So no matter what stone we're talking about, there, it's incredible what John sees. Verse 19. He now looks at the different levels of the, of the foundations. And again, the city has these foundations now, we build foundations to hold the building up. God didn't need foundations to hold his building up. Because what's under the foundation? Nothing. Uh, nothing. <laughs> so it just, just kind of hangs in the air. So uh, there's, you know, our foundations sit on the ground or they're dug down into the ground or whatever, you know. And you, you go to a site of building a skyscraper or building a, a huge bridge and the holes down where they are building the pillars and digging for it's incredibly deep as they dig down to bedrock or they dig down to where things won't move. God doesn't need that. He just hangs the foundation in the air. Right? The first foundation is Jasper, just like the walls, just like the the appearance of what John saw. Uh, so this first is the jasper stone again the diamond and these layer upon layer these different comes go on top of the jasper stone is a second foundation the sapphire now the sapphire of their day is not the same as the sapphire of our day again they use different titles 
are you sad because you like sapphires? Okay. So I'm sorry. Um, this sapphire is probably closer to what we know today as lapis. All right. So the uh, which, which to me is a beautiful stone, but the the presentation of this is blue in color, but it's not as we describe it according to Pliny, who uh, Greek of that day. He describes it as sky blue flecked with gold. So it's a light blue stone with golden in it, like lapis. All right. The third level is agate. You think agate? That's not that's not pretty. So who puts an agate, you know, on their neck? Whatever. Agate stone uh, actually is chalcedon, which comes from an area of Turkey. Um, but this is a a gem in those days. This stone was, again, sky blue, stripes of other colors running through it. So you would have a sky blue, partially clear, somewhat opaque, stone with um, different color stripes going through it. The fourth level is emerald, um, which is the same as the emerald of our day, uh, bright green in color. The fifth is onyx. Uh, in their day, they called it sardonyx because it came from the area of Sardin. Uh, it was red and white stone in which the white was broken by layers of red and brown. So these are the stones that you make a cameo from because you've got red and then you've got a white layer and then another red or brown layer. And so as you engrave this stone, it exposes the white that's on the inside. So you see there's cameos, kind of a coral color with a cream inside. So that's the sardonyx of their day. The sixth foundation is uh, carnelian. Uh, it's a red, can be very deeply red, but more often a yellowish red, uh, what we would almost call an orange, but uh, and it's not because of OSU cowboys. Um, one book called it, it referred to it as a, a honey type color. All right, so kind of a reddish tan. Not considered the most valuable, but God's not going by man's estimation, it's by His. So. No, I've seen, uh, I've seen studies, some of the commentaries that tried to make spiritual application out of each one of these stones. It's really hard to do because you really have to stretch to make some kind of spiritual application out of each one of these stones. Um, but some people do it. The seventh is a stone called a chrysolite. Chrysolite is a transparent stone, again, of a golden yellowish color and of a light, light yellow, according to the uh, writer Pliny. Um, it's different than we have a chrysolite today, which is more of a pale green, but in their day it was more yellow. All right. The eighth foundation is beryl, sea blue or sea green. So the beryl is, was a beautiful stone in their day, used quite often because they were um, not as rare as some of the other gems. Topaz, which is uh, pretty much the same as the topaz of our day, a kind of a greenish gold stone. And um, again, topaz, beautiful, can be a very beautiful stone. God chose it for one of his foundations. Uh, the next one, Chrysoprasus, um, that's a strange name for us. I could not come up with anybody's modern day name for this stone. Um, they just called it a shade of green. And again, it was considered valuable and precious in their day. The jacinth is a, kind of a violet color stone. Uh, maybe what we can call a sapphire today. And that's, there are some authors that say it was probably the modern day sapphire. But sapphires can be anywhere from deep blue to even black all the way to a light blue or even light green. So sapphire can be 
numbers of different colors. So this would be, uh, what was that? And then the 12th stone is the amethyst, which is the same as our amethyst today, which is a beautifully purple stone, all right? So what's the spiritual meaning of all of that? Got no idea. There it is. I got no idea. Um, people have tried to make applications out of this. Uh, you can go back and try to identify these with the different, the different uh, of the tribes because there were gemstones on the priests, but they're not all of these stones aren't all found there. And so then you're kind of lost with that. And uh, so the best thing is to say God did this so we would just stand there with our mouths open and say, wow, <laughs> look at that. How thick are these foundations? They're not described. But we know they are what? 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. That's pretty incredible. That's a, that's a big topaz. I'm just telling you, right? That's a big topaz. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made out of a single pearl. Interestingly, in a lot of the Old Testament era, pearl was not considered one of the gemstones of Israel. They, they weren't, there were none on the, on the priesthood. Their, their gemstones all came out of the ground. And so if you've heard Pastor Bob teaching on uh, the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price, Pearl came out of a living organism. The, all these other gems come out of the ground. They have to be chipped and ground and broken and polished and all those kinds of things. That's Israel. And so the 12 stones on the priest's uh, breastplate representing the different things that God did. And yeah, Israel was chipped and ground and polished and, and uh, brought to perfection. But when it came to the pearl, the pearl either comes out perfect or it's not. Then there are cheap pearls and they break some of those up and make lining out of them or powder or glue them together and make, you know, fake pearls and they do all kinds of things with bad pearls, but a beautiful pearl, a pearl of great price came out of the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like a pearl comes out of the oyster, so the church, the pearl, was born out of his own suffering and his own wounds. And so the church becomes this. And I believe that that's significant because the church represents faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's Old Testament saints there, but without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no access to the new heaven, the new earth. There is no access to the very presence of God. There's only one way in, and that's through the church, through what God has done. You say, well, the Old Testament, but they were already there, right? So once Jesus came, the treasure's there, but so also the pearls. And so in John's day, you couldn't get in by the law. You couldn't get in by keeping the law. You couldn't be saved in John's day by believing that someday God will send a redeemer or that there will be a sacrifice to take away your sin. No, he's already come. Either you believe him, accept him, or forever find yourself on the outside of the city, which he's going to mention a couple times in the next chapter. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So this is pretty incredible place what what's this all about god making a place to show his glory but i love about all of this and we'll get exactly to this in our next lesson the glorious part of this city isn't the walls or the foundations or the pearls the glorious part of this city is the lamb and that's what we will see in our next part. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, that you give us life and strength. But, Father, you also give us hope. 
The second coming is called the great hope. And we have this hope within us. The coming glory of dwelling forever in your presence. And we pray, Father God, that your gospel would reach more and more people that they might open their hearts and believe and receive and find their place in the coming new heaven and new earth. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.